Welcome back to another episode of Veritas, the truth behind Asian Americans and affirmative action. I'm Sion Kim. This is DJ. Today's episode is titled, I Got Rejected from Harvard and It Feels Personal. We'll be talking about the personal rating category in Harvard admissions, examining the history of it, as well as its current role in the lawsuit involving Students for Fair Admissions, otherwise known as SFFA. Okay, personal rating? That kind of sounds like it could be anything. So what even is this category? Right, even the phrase personal rating really confuses people. I personally had no idea what it was before doing the research for this podcast, even though article after article was coming out about the SFFA lawsuit and how Asian Americans were being ranked lower on this category. So just to confirm I wasn't the only one confused, I actually interviewed a bunch of college students on what they thought the personal rating category was. I would tell them, Harvard's recent admission scandal involved the allegation that Asian Americans are rated lower in the personal rating category of the admissions process. Do you know what this personal rating category entails? And if so, could you explain it? And this is what they had to say. I don't know what that is. Wait, what do you mean the rating category? I think I've heard of this before, but Mm -hmm. I'm not sure what that specific term ascribes to it. Mm -hmm. But I feel like I'm aware of the concept. So as you heard, there's a whole lot of confusion surrounding this category. To understand what it is exactly, let's go back to how personal rating even became a part of college admissions to begin with. Sounds good. So I've read a lot of articles arguing that this lawsuit proves that Asian Americans are the new Jews. This is a historical comparison, right? Does this have anything to do with the personal rating category? Yes, definitely. So like you said, this is a really important part of SFFA's argument. The seminal work we should turn to in understanding this claim is Jerome Carabell's book, The Chosen, The Hidden History of Admission and Exclusion at Harvard, Yale, and Princeton. Carabell's investigation into the origins of elite admissions examines how, back in the early 1900s, Harvard's administration, in particular then-President Abbott Lawrence Lowell, grew alarmed at the rising number of Jewish students on their campus. An actual committee was formed in order to count the number of enrolled Jewish students at Harvard between the years of 1900 and 1922, which classified students into one of four categories, J1, J2, J3, and other, in order of applicants most likely to be Jewish to least likely to be Jewish. Wait, so Harvard actually characterizes students by their seeming Jewness? This is crazy. And it gets even crazier. When the committee found that there was a 14.5% increase in Jewish enrollment at Harvard in the span of 22 years, the administration started to get frantic. In 1922, Jewish students made up a whopping 21.5% of student enrollment, threatening the cherished WASP traditions at elite universities. So to combat this, President Lowell now sought to institute a cap on Jewish enrollment in each entering class. Oh, God! How do they manage to do that without it seeming discriminatory? Ah, yes. How do we cover up discrimination so that it seems legitimate? Because no matter what, we must maintain meritocracy. So the problem for Harvard was that increasing numbers of Jewish students were passing the exam that was then the only requirement for admission. So the college admissions process became more and more dependent on subjective criteria. Carabell notes that Harvard, as well as Yale and Princeton, shifted their policies to be based more on consideration of character, personality, promise, and background of the individual in question than pure academic qualifications. Huh. So it sounds like these subjective measures of character and personality 
were added to the college admissions process as a guise in order to keep Jewish students out. But how would you even go about measuring such abstract qualities? Exactly. The administration began to use personal interviews and letters of recommendation, as well as athletic prowess and alumni parentage, in order to keep Jewish enrollment at bay. Carable remarks that the personal interview in particular became an ideal device for assessing appearance, manners, and ethnic and religious background. You know, the more we talk about this, the more I keep thinking that this is exactly what holistic college admissions consists of today. So, is Students for Fair Admissions actually correct in claiming that Asian Americans are the new Jews? Like we talked about before, one of their claims is that Asian American students are consistently ranked lower in the personal rating category, even though they outperform other races when it comes to academic performance. Isn't this an exact parallel to what you've been telling me about the history of Jewish enrollment at Harvard? Okay, so this is where it gets complicated. SFFA's comparison is a convincing one. In fact, the organization cites Carabell's book a bunch of times in their official complaint as evidence of this seeming parallel. But are measures of character and personality used in the same exclusionary manners today? We should probably examine how Harvard admissions works currently before we draw any conclusions about historical comparisons. That sounds fair. I actually feel like my original question still hasn't been answered. What exactly is the personal rating category? Yes, I think one of the reasons I'm very hesitant to make any historical comparisons regarding this lawsuit is that college admissions have evolved over time. So while we have a lot of evidence that Harvard fully used measures of character and background in order to keep its Anglo-Saxon roots, it's way harder to determine the same sort of thing in its admissions process today. Firstly, the personal rating category is one of four categories that an applicant is ranked on. Okay, it seems like we're getting closer to answering my question. What are the other three categories? So after admissions officers go through essays, transcripts, test scores, and recommendation letters, they rank each applicant on a scale of one to six, one being the highest with optional pluses and minuses for the students that are on the brink of a certain ranking on four categories, personal, academic, extracurricular, and athletic. Readers also give a preliminary overall rating, which is, interestingly, more of a judgment call as it isn't an average of the other ratings. That's unexpected. But back to the personal rating specifically. It seems pretty clear how you would measure the other three categories of academic, extracurricular, and athletic aptitude. But how does Harvard decide what an applicant's personal rating is? I would say that this is the question to answer. As part of the lawsuit, Harvard submitted documents that detail guidelines for their admissions officers called reading procedures. I'll read you the personal rating portion of these procedures for the class of 2018. The entire document is really, really empty. All that's there is a section with the heading personal that says, one, outstanding, two, very strong, three, generally positive, four, bland or somewhat negative or immature, five, questionable personal qualities, and six, worrisome personal qualities. What? That's it? Yeah. As you heard, there was basically no specification on how a reader should determine an applicant's personal rating. But wait, this was for the class of 2018. Let's take a look at the reading procedures for the class of 2023, the first incoming class after the lawsuit by Students for Fair Admissions. I've printed them out here, actually. DJ, do you notice anything from a first glance? Whoa. Well, 
let's just start with the fact that it's way, way longer than the two, three word description you just read me for the class of 2018. And there seems to be an actual description for what the personal reading is. I remember you reading me that for the earlier reading procedures. For sure. If you wouldn't mind, could you read the description part? It's really long, so we'll read it in sections. Yeah, sure. Okay, so the personal reading should be an assessment made by the readers of what kind of effect the student might have on others at Harvard and beyond. It should be based on an assessment of what kind of positive effect this person might have throughout his or her life, based on what we have seen so far in the student's application materials. This should include such considerations as what kind of contribution would the person make to the dining hall conversation, to study groups, and to society as a whole after graduation. Okay, so already, we're given a lot of information about what the personal rating is, or at least what it should be. It's an assessment of an applicant's impact on others. Let's keep going. In assigning the personal rating, readers should consider information we receive from teachers, counselors, applicants, other recommenders, interviewers, and others as well as the applicant's essays, extracurricular activities, and other items in the application file, what the applicant shows us about him or herself, and what the applicant has done or accomplished for others. And here, they tell us what materials must be taken into consideration when trying to determine the personal rating. There's way more specification than before. Okay, last part. It is important to keep in mind that characteristics not always synonymous with extroversion are similarly valued. Applicants who seem to be particularly reflective, insightful, and slash or dedicated should receive higher personal ratings as well. As noted above, though, an applicant's race or ethnicity should not be considered in assigning the personal rating. We understand that students are multidimensional and ever-evolving. Many applicants have grown enormously between the time when they apply in the fall or winter or their senior year and when they arrive in Cambridge the following September. Additionally, we are aware that we work with incomplete information. So the guidelines here give us the most direct response to the SFFA lawsuit. Readers are instructed that extroverts should not be automatically given a high personal rating and similarly that introverts should not be immediately marked down. And most importantly, the guidelines read, an applicant's race or ethnicity should not be considered in assigning the personal rating. And the individual rankings are explained more too. For instance, a personal rating of one entails the following. Truly outstanding qualities of character. Student may display enormous courage in the face of seemingly insurmountable obstacles in life. Student may demonstrate a singular ability to lead or inspire those around them. Student may exhibit extraordinary concern or compassion for others. Student receives unqualified and unwavering support from their recommenders. DJ, could you read the description of the two ranking? Sure. It says, very strong qualities of character. Student may demonstrate strong leadership. Student may exhibit a level of maturity beyond their years. Student may exhibit uncommon genuineness, selflessness, or humility in their dealings with others. Students may possess strong resiliency. Students receive very strong support from their recommenders. Right. So in sheer word count alone, the reading procedures for the class of 2023 are better than the class of 2018 ones. Unfortunately, when we keep reading the descriptions of individual rankings, there seems to be less detail. For a three-plus ranking, an applicant, quote, may exhibit commitment, good judgment, and positive citizenship. Student may exercise a spirit and camaraderie with peers. Student receives positive support from their recommenders. For a three ranking, the only guideline is generally positive, perhaps somewhat neutral qualities of character, and for four, questionable or worrisome qualities of character. 
Oh. I agree with you that the most recent reading procedures definitely improved, but I think I'm still confused as to how an application reader would actually determine what a worrisome quality of character would be. I think that's totally valid. I also think a bigger problem is that these guidelines prior to the lawsuit weren't available to the public. I checked the Harvard website, too, to see if any more information could be found. Currently stated on its website, in the What We Look For section under the Apply menu, admissions is described as generally falling under four categories, an applicant's growth and potential, interest and activities, character and personality, and contribution to the Harvard community so not the four categories that are explicitly outlined in the reading procedures. And let's go back to those interviews that I did. After basically all of the students I asked expressed that they had no clue what the personal rating was, I asked them to venture a guess. Here's what some of them had to say. Um, I don't want to say it's like a minority quota, but Mm -hmm. is it that like it takes into account like your background and your status and like your ethnicity as a person, like in addition to like... I don't know, like your academics and where you come from. Like not mm-hmm. not only just your like race and et cetera, et cetera, like your identity, but also like your academics. Hopefully, I hope colleges do that. <laughs> um. <laughs> Probably a combination of like many different things, including personality, race, other, many other factors. So you think race is involved in the personal rating category, if you had to guess. Um, yes. Uh, (laughs) I don't know, something to do with what you did in school or race. So when there's a lack of information, it can not only be confusing, but also leads to dangerous and incorrect assumptions. For me, a situation like this seems comparable to one where a teacher assigns you a project, but doesn't give you the rubric. How are you supposed to know what you're being graded on? Of course, the counterargument to this would be that there is, in fact, no rubric for any of this. In a video by Bloomberg titled College Admissions Inside the Decision Room, we are given a glimpse into an admissions committee at Amherst College coming to decisions on who to admit and who to defer. With Caitlin on her being an inside-the-box kind of gal. Inside the box. Inside the box. How many would like to admit? Waitlist. Wait, what just happened? So basically, a reader just noticed that an applicant was described as an inside-the-box kind of student. And after that, none of the readers wanted to admit the applicant, and they unanimously voted to waitlist her. Just off that? That's insane! Well, no. I mean, I think there's a lot of context being left out in this video, but I think it still gives us a good idea of how an applicant is viewed by an admissions committee. Here's another clip from the same video. In the process of, of making those decisions is agonizing. I'm questioning the edge here, yeah. however, in all her excellence. How many would like to admit? Okay, she goes to the wait list. We're fully aware of the fact that the process is, I don't want to say flawed, but is making minute distinctions among extraordinarily talented kids. There are times, honestly, where I'm not sure why I put my hand up or, or failed to put my hand up. I'm kind of going with my gut here. Wow. At least he's being honest, I guess? I actually think so, too. The truth is that at any elite school, not just Harvard, the pool of applicants is already such a highly accomplished one that I have to imagine gut feeling is a big part of why someone gets rejected while someone else doesn't. 
Here are some more clips from another video by Vice News titled, How Broken the College Admissions Process Is, of admissions officers explaining what they do. This particular video came out after the recent infamous college admissions scandal, Operation Varsity Blues. The scandal's an extreme example of the desperation and stress that now surround the college admissions process, a process that only the people in charge of it, admissions officers, really understand. You are evaluating and letting someone in based on paper. We are making decisions uh, that could impact kids' futures, you know, not just the four years where they go to college, but all the networks that they establish. You have to try to read between the lines and, 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 and make really good decisions on the information that, you, that you're given. Just because you're a good kid, just because you get exceptional grades and you deserve an acceptance, doesn't mean you're going to get it. So those were the opinions of former application readers from various colleges, including Princeton University and New York University. I think the last point about what quote-unquote deserving to get in actually means is a salient one. Next, you'll hear these admissions officers talk about what kinds of applicants they look for. That girl uh, who wants to study public policy, the one who volunteered on Hillary Clinton's campaign. Here's like the Stuyvesant math team captain. All admissions officers, we all have personal biases based on how we grew up. You know, I was a public school kid who, you know, had a guidance counselor that didn't even know uh, the colleges on my list. So I was always rooting for that public school kid who didn't have a lot of resources. I would always advocate for newspaper kids, kids who are interested in sort of making the world and their communities a better place. So all you have to do is, you know, talk about sort of women's rights or student diversity leadership conference. I was all over you, okay? I had a soft spot for kids who were from poverty. We're people and we all kind of gravitate towards our own personal experience. Neither of my parents went to college and so I will always fight for those kids. I think they face an uphill battle in the selection process. Applicants kids who played instruments, if you were a pianist or a violinist, I was all over that. Growing up as um, in a really homogenous, um, white, affluent town, I really struggled with my self-identity, with, with being non-white. When a student was applying that might have been marginalized, oftentimes students of color, first-generation students, it was easy for me to advocate for those kids. And of course, young women, right? Young women and young women of color. I'm just going to keep it real. Georgia, North Carolina, South Carolina, in there. I was all over you. So yes, I have a lot of biases. Oh. OK, what did you think of that, DJ? Well, I think it's good that there's an acceptance of internal personal biases. I mean, it makes sense, right? Since you have to consider context outside of just grades and extracurriculars on paper, it'd be kind of hard to consider that quote-unquote objectively. I totally agree. Let's listen to one last video clip. This 2009 interview features then-admissions director of Stanford University. When it comes down to who is ultimately going to be offered a spot in the class, it's rarely a situation where an admission committee is sitting down and talking about who has the most number of A's or who has the most number of advanced placement courses under their belt or who has the strongest testing profile under their belt. It really tends to be what kind of impact has that student had in their particular community? Um, what do the teachers have to say about this particular student? What is the guidance counselor at Campbell Hall or Harvard-Westlake or whatever other high school they're applying from? Um, 
have to say about this particular candidate. Um, a lot of times, and this is probably what's another element of frustration among students and parents, is that sometimes it comes down to the really intangible things, like who is really a nice person, and what is the kind of work ethic that is behind this student and just how interesting this student is in the contextual framework of who else is applying for that particular year. So all the kind of intangible variables have a whole heck of a lot more influence than what the students and parents think come into play. So one thing that's clear from all these video clips is that there is no one formula on how to get into Harvard or any other elite university. It's worth noting here that in this way, there's a cultural difference between U.S. colleges and schools in Asia, where I know that in countries including China and Korea, there's just one entrance exam. And that's what determines whether you get in or not. Just one number. So maybe that's why some of these Asian parents are so angry, because they assume high enough numbers equals acceptance. Yes. I think that's definitely a part of the cultural disconnect, especially when you consider that most of the Asian American opponents of affirmative action, the ones who have been the most vocal as a part of the SFFA, are first-generation, wealthier immigrants. So I want to make a bit of a shift in topic here and welcome Karina, who will be examining the statistics side of this case and breaking down what exactly the two sides, SFFA and Harvard, are saying about this elusive personal rating category. Hey, thanks for having me on the show. And you're definitely right in saying that the personal rating is elusive. It's difficult to understand anyways, especially given its complicated history and vague definition. But it is really important to this case how both sides use statistics to support their legal arguments about it. Yes, definitely, which is why I'm so glad you're here to explain everything. So, I know the lawyers themselves are definitely not coming up with the statistics here, so who's exactly behind the expert reports for each side? Good question. The expert for SFFA is Dr. Peter S. Archidiakono, a professor of economics at Duke University whose research focuses on labor economics. And the expert for Harvard is Dr. David Card, professor of economics at the University of California, Berkeley, whose research also focuses on labor economics. Okay, wait, so they both specialize in economics and not stats? Is that maybe something we should worry about? No, not at all. Economics research heavily relies on statistical methods, so of all the things to worry about with the numbers in this case, the experts' qualifications aren't one of them. <laughs> all right, if you say so. So to get right into it, what claim is SFFA making about the personal rating specifically? SFFA says that Asian American applicants suffer a statistically significant penalty relative to white applicants in the personal rating. Okay, but what does statistically significant mean? Statistically significant is a pretty common term used across a lot of research disciplines that use statistics just to say that their numbers are reliable. So, if you have a set of conditions that you believe are true, the result you get is statistically significant if it's very unlikely for a particular event to happen given those conditions. Okay, wait, I'm not sure I'm following this. Could you break that down? Sure. Let's take this example from statisticsteacher.org. It's a card trick of sorts. Say I have two decks of cards, and I take out all of the red cards from the decks and combine them. I keep my new red deck face down, so you assume the deck has been randomly shuffled. Then. I promise to give $10 to the first person who pulls a black card from the deck. 
So naturally, everyone gets excited. Hmm. I would definitely like that extra $10 in my wallet and would take my shot at pulling out a car from the deck. Yeah, me too. And it seems pretty likely that, say, within the first five cards pulled, you'll hit a black card. But the first card is red, of course, and so is the second, and so are the third and fourth. By the fifth card, people are going to get suspicious. Yeah, this would make me think something was up, or that it was some sort of scam. You're right. It's totally a scam. So here's the catch. The assumption you made when you said you'd take a shot at that $10 was that my deck was randomly shuffled. By the fifth card, we would expect it to be very likely that someone would pull out a black card, which wasn't the case here. So there's a high chance of your initial assumption being wrong. In other words, my deck of cards was statistically significantly unfair, likely not random. The only completely correct assumption you could make here is that I'm terrible with card tricks. (laughs) Okay, this makes more sense now, and now I know not to trust you with a deck of cards. But what does all this mean in terms of SFFA's quote-unquote Asian penalty? Okay, so this time, instead of assuming that you have a fair deck of cards, assume that you give all Harvard applicants across different groups the same personal rating, keeping other factors of admissions fixed. It would seem pretty likely that acceptance letters would be distributed evenly across all these groups. But, according to SFFA's statistical analysis, if this were the case, Asian American applicants have significantly lower probabilities of receiving that acceptance letter than the other groups, just like there was a significantly low probability of pulling five red cards in a row from a random deck. With this data, SFFA questions the initial assumption here, that Asian Americans are getting the same overall score as everyone else, which they then make the legal claim to suggest a penalty against Asian Americans in Harvard's selection of applicants. Okay, I can follow that. It seems like a logical conclusion to make now that I understand statistical significance. So what does SFFA think would happen if there was no alleged Asian penalty? SFFA's expert built a model to predict what would happen in that case, actually. Without the Asian penalty, they say there would be 235 more accepted Asian American students over a period of six years. That's a more than 16% increase. And if everyone was treated as if they were white, the percentage increases to a whopping 46%, or 674 more Asian American acceptances. Okay, wow. But how do we know how much of that comes from the personal rating? If you just remove the penalty in personal and overall ratings and keep any other penalties SFFA claims, 105 more Asian Americans would be accepted, which is a 7.2% increase. By comparing this to the initial 235 more acceptances, SFFA claims that this shows that personal and overall rating make up 55% of the Asian penalty. Hmm, what does Harvard have to say about that? Not surprisingly, Harvard is very skeptical. Harvard not only questions SFFA's legal conclusion, but also how they determine from the data that the statistically significant Asian penalty actually exists. Harvard says that SFFA's statistical evidence is weak for two major reasons, and they build another set of statistical models to show this numerically. So Harvard doesn't agree with SFFA's methods. Exactly, and that's their first reason why Harvard says SFFA's evidence is weak. They say the available admissions data include only a few quantitative variables that can be used to model the personal rating. 
It doesn't account for qualitative factors that have a large impact on the personal rating, like an applicant's essay. And SFFA isn't getting the whole story across with the numbers? Well, according to Harvard, no, clearly not. This means that the Asian penalty could possibly explain by factors other than race that the models just don't include. Remember when I said the additional number of Asian American acceptances over six years drops from 235 to 105 if you only account for the changes in the personal and overall rating? Well, by this logic, if you added all the qualitative factors that SFFA's models couldn't account for, that number could drop to much lower than 105. So then, the personal rating might not be as significant as SFFA claims it is. Right, which affects SFFA's legal claims. The second reason that Harvard says their conclusion is unreasonable goes a little beyond personal rating. Harvard claims that SFFA's statistical models for academic and extracurricular rating show a significant positive effect on Asian American applicants. Yeah, what does this have to do with the personal rating? Okay, hear me out. So this, combined with the fact that the personal rating model doesn't account for qualitative data, leads Harvard to believe only two logical conclusions can be made. One, either Harvard particularly favors Asian Americans in academics and extracurriculars and particularly penalizes them on personal and overall ratings, which they say is a pretty weird form of discrimination for SFFA to claim against them. And two, SFFA's models just aren't reliable enough for them to claim the existence of an Asian penalty. So legally, Harvard opted for conclusion two. Okay, that also makes a lot of sense. So, is it all just a numbers game? See, that's the thing with statistics. You can represent data in a lot of different ways depending on your purpose. And both sides represent data for the personal rating very differently. A large basis for the legal arguments made on both sides of this case are the statistics each side chooses to show. But there is a long history of math being both used and misused in court so you can't completely rely on the numbers. Much like in college applications, numbers just can't tell the whole story. Yeah, gotta agree with you there. Thank you so much for your statistical expertise, Karina. No problem. Thanks for having me. So after everything, what do you think, Sion? Does examining the personal rating confirm that there's actually discrimination happening? Honestly, this is such a complicated issue that even after looking into things further, I don't think I'm able to make any groundbreaking conclusions. But I think I'm able to say one thing for certain. The personal rating category, and college admissions in general, isn't as clear-cut as the opponents of affirmative action are making it seem to be. Simply because one expert claims that Asian Americans are getting ranked lower in this category doesn't mean that we can claim that we are being discriminated against. And it certainly doesn't mean we should be trying to get rid of affirmative action. In an article by Dr. Margaret M. Chin and multiple other professors about the misconceptions of the personal rating in this trial, the authors point out that there was only a 0.05 point difference between Asian American and white applicants on average. I don't know if there's any hard evidence that discrimination against Asian Americans is happening, which makes it all the more crucial to take a moment and step back before we use this discrimination claim to get rid of affirmative action. So yes, getting rejected from a school feels extremely personal. But is it actually? I don't think the issue is so black and white. 
That makes sense. Thanks, Ayan, for telling me more about the personal rating category in Harvard admissions. I can't believe how complex a topic it actually is. I totally agree. Thank you for joining me, DJ, and thank you everyone for listening. And on that note, we'll end episode two. I got rejected from Harvard and it feels personal. This is Sion. This is DJ. And you're listening to Veritas, the truth behind Asian Americans and affirmative action. Hi, this is Professor Franklin Odo. These podcasts are products of a research colloquium that I taught in the American Studies Department of Amherst College. We are grateful for support from Associate Dean Austin Surratt and from Catherine Epstein, Provost and Dean of the Faculty at Amherst College.